Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue this week with our series, The Price of Victory. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 to 13, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Marks of an Apostle. reading 2 Corinthians 12, 11 to 13. I have been a fool, you forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Now, this small section of Scripture marks the end of a long, protracted section in our Bible. The section I'm referring to goes from 2 Corinthians chapter 10 all the way through to this section in chapter 12. This marks the end of Paul's fool speech. He says the entire exercise of these last three chapters of Scripture are an exercise in folly. Well, you might wonder then, why is it even in our Bible? Well, it's in our Bible because there has been something very valuable that needs to be learned from it. It should tell us that Christian ministry, most specifically Christian leadership, is not about who's got the best story or who's got the best resume or who has the best speaking skills or so on. Unfortunately, in our day, at least in some circles, it has come down to precisely that. Now, to be truthful, this short passage is not about how to choose a pastor or a preacher or someone to arrange and schedule programs and budgets and, you know, building management and whatever else goes on in the local church and what the local church needs in order to do its ministry well. You know, this passage is about the marks of an apostle. And it's so important not to equate the ministry of an apostle to a Christian leader today, be that a pastor or a teacher or a manager. An apostle is a unique office, one that was never intended to have been continued. The passage we're reading today tells us about how these 12 unique men became apostles and how people could recognize a true apostle. And that is important because that discussion about true apostolicity, well, that has a great deal to tell us about how it is that the books that make up our New Testament came to be accepted as authoritative books and why it is that other books were not accepted. Why does our New Testament only have 27 books? So, for instance, why is the Didache not accepted as a New Testament book? It was written shortly after the book of Revelation. Why is the epistle of Barnabas or the writings of Clement of Rome not among our books in the Bible and so on? And by the way, whenever I'm asked to answer that question, that is, why only these 27 books and no more, I love to respond with my own question. Which other books do you have in mind? And often there's not a clear answer to that question, just a general uneasiness that that just perhaps behind closed doors, some very powerful men made a decision as to what constitutes Christian doctrine and what does not. I mean, after all, who are they to decide? Again, when I hear that, I'm again tempted to answer with a question. Which powerful men do you have in mind? Exactly when did this supposed meeting take place? You see, we live in a day when people love to believe in conspiracy theories, where simply to introduce the idea that powerful men manipulated things, I mean, just to say that, even though we have no proof it's so, but just to say it, well, that's going to get tongues wagging. 
Some people love conspiracy theories, and more so, some people just love to believe conspiracy theories. But if we're serious about truth, we don't pay attention to whispers and rumors and suspicions and slander. Rather, we'll rest on the sufficiency of the truth that can be verified. That's at the heart of this passage. It's about apostleship. It's about who was given authority to lay down the doctrine of the Christian faith. But from this truth, we can also make an application. Who shall lead us today or or who shall lead us in every era? What are the marks of authentic and trustworthy Christian leadership? And notice I didn't ask what are the marks of leadership that our culture loves? Notice I also didn't ask what are the kinds of leaders that people in churches love? Rather, I asked what are the kinds of marks of leaders that a love of truth mandates that we must have? Let's go to our passage. Paul begins with the words, I've been a fool. You know, this entire exercise has been folly, but he adds, you forced me to it. And this is important. Had the Christian leaders in Corinth stood up for their apostle, and had they fought hard for him, Paul would not have been in a place of having to fight for himself. The leaders in the church in Corinth should have been speaking commendations, reminding the people of the man that God had sent to them. But at least so it would seem, they had been relatively quiet. And in this controversy between Paul and the false teachers, no one else spoke. Perhaps the leaders of the Corinthian church might have reminded their congregation of 1 Corinthians 4.15, that although the church has countless guides in Christ, yet they did not have many fathers in Christ. This man, Paul, was unique, and he should have been seen for what he was. You see, they needed to say something. You know, everyone who's in Christian leadership knows that it's almost impossible to defend oneself against unjust attacks. Someone should have stepped to the plate for Paul, but by all accounts, no one did. If you go back to 2 Corinthians 3, verse 2, you should be able to see what some of them should have said. You know, there Paul wrote, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. That is, we preached the gospel to you, and through our testimony, you came to believe. Your lives were changed through us. It was important for those people who owed Paul their very own lives to now step to the front and protect his ministry from unjust slander. But they didn't. They just waited around and wanted to see what would transpire. And that experience can make one feel isolated. That's why he says, I ought to have been commended by you. Instead, the voices of his supporters were silent. Perhaps they were intimidated by the criticism of the false teachers. I mean, perhaps the loud voices just had their day, and the good people said nothing. You might remember that it was Abraham Lincoln who was purported to have said that all it takes for evil to flourish is for good men to do nothing, and that at least for a time is what had happened. The false teachers were making unjust accusations, and everyone else was silent. And I need to add a word of application. If you have a good pastor— You can't just write him a note telling him that you appreciate him. So you tell him in private while the slanderers speak in public. You have to go beyond private praise. You need to speak up. And when he's being unjustly and publicly criticized, you need to respond justly and publicly. Why? Because slanders are only bold because they assume no one's going to hold them to account. Indeed, most slanders are completely certain they can do harm without anyone calling for their discipline. But Paul had no such luxury. 
just to allow the slanderers to continue. He couldn't remain silent. And so Paul says, in order to defend himself against the kinds of attacks that he's received, he said, I've been a fool. He's been boasting. He's been building himself up. Paul knows that being a fool undermines the cause of Christ. Paul realizes that he has had to respond to the charges against him, but he also knows he needs to say something about his opponents. Notice what he says in verse 11. He says, I was not at all, not in any way inferior to those super apostles. Now, this is now the second time he uses that phrase. If you look back at chapter 11, verse 5, there he says, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. And it's that phrase that we need to consider. Does Paul think these men are apostles? And I mention that because there are some people in our day who take upon themselves the title apostle. See, that's the title they've given themselves. So what do we make of that? But Paul didn't become an apostle by simply calling himself that. He didn't rise to the position. It wasn't his credentials nor his abilities that got him there. And it wasn't his visions or his mystical experiences. That's what he's been saying up to this point in time. Rather, he became an apostle because Christ had called him to be one. Now, that's why I notice it again in the end of verse 11. He says, look, I'm not inferior to those super apostles, even though I am nothing, he says. Yeah, I'm nothing. God did not perform a sports trade to get me out of the devil's camp. I wasn't a good deal for God. I offered God nothing. My story, says Paul, is the story of grace, unworthy, of no advantage to God, yet notwithstanding, God chose me for this role. That's Paul's starting place. It was never the starting place of the super apostles. I mean, they got where they were by by plugging their resumes and by making a case for their importance. So let's examine that title, shall we? Super apostles. Let's start by saying that when Paul talks about the super apostles in quotations, he's most definitely not talking about Peter or John or Matthew. Indeed, the title super apostles wasn't a title of respect nor was it a reference to a position they had. Paul's using the title as an exaggeration. He's using it to expose these men as being nothing of the kind. So then we need to answer the question, don't we? What constitutes a genuine apostle who can command the kind of authority to set down the doctrinal truths of the Christian faith? The central mission of the church is the Great Commission. We are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. So join Dr. John Newfeld as he walks us through a video series on missions called The Missionary God. The Missionary God is available for viewing at backtothebible.ca or on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel. And we encourage you to pray for opportunities to be messengers of joy, sharing trustworthy Bible teaching that brings real hope in difficult times. To know more or to make a gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. What is an apostle? Go back to the time immediately after the resurrection of Jesus, and there we find the apostles awaiting the coming of the Holy Spirit. But they are short one apostle. Judas has betrayed Jesus and has now taken his own life. 
they've got to find someone to replace him. Acts 1, 21 to 22 is insightful, for it defines a true apostle. The 11 say, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness of his resurrection. The apostles had been trained by Jesus. They had witnessed what he did, and because of that, they were able to accurately communicate the gospel. That is an apostle. It's an eyewitness of Jesus who has been trained by him. Now, by this time, it should be a simple thing to say that none of these men that Paul sarcastically calls super apostles are apostles at all. An apostle is a non-repeatable office. In Ephesians 2.20, Paul says the entire church of Jesus is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's to say everything the church believes and holds to be true about Jesus was reported to us by those who first were eyewitnesses of what Jesus taught and second had been directly chosen by Jesus and third were directly trained by Jesus for three years. And that's why Peter would later say in 2 Peter 1.16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we, that is we, the apostles, were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Let me repeat that. No one is an apostle if that person wasn't a firsthand eyewitness of the life, teachings, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And furthermore, no one is an apostle who wasn't specifically chosen by Jesus to be an apostle. You might be the most exciting preacher the world has ever heard, but unless that's in your resume, you're no apostle. And of course, that's the answer as to why certain writings are included in the New Testament and others don't have a snowball's chance in a blast furnace of making it. It's absolutely nothing to do with backroom deals and with powerful males. It has to do with but one thing. Apostles write scripture, along with a few other prophets who are under the direct leadership of the apostles, full stop. That's the end. And that is the authority structure upon which the entire church rests. That's how we got the New Testament. But it's here that someone might object. Well, what about Paul? Is he then to be discounted as a true apostle? And to this, we have to make the argument in exactly the way that Paul does. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 8 to 10 says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. That is, Paul also was directly trained by Jesus. Paul testified to that very thing in Galatians 1, 11 to 12. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That is to say, Paul was not taught the truths of Jesus by someone else, but rather, over a period of three years, the risen Jesus appeared personally to him. I'm of the opinion that the description of being taken up into the third heaven, the passage that we read about in our last study, I believe that would have happened during that three-year period of time, when the risen Jesus was explaining the gospel to Paul. What adds emphasis to this is that Peter himself, as is recorded in 2 Peter 3.16, 
indicates that he, as well as the other apostles, recognized that Paul indeed was a true apostle. Yes, he was untimely born. Yep, he was the one exception, but that one exception was truly a Jesus-inspired exception to build the foundation of the very church. Now, let's get back to our study. We've noticed that in 2 Corinthians 12, 11, that Paul has said, look, I'm, I'm not inferior to these so-called super apostles that are claiming authority over the church in Corinth, even though on a personal level, I'm nothing. And then Paul adds his claim in verse 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. See, after defining the nature of apostleship, Powell now explains the way in which apostles function. There were signs of a true apostle. We remember Peter and John in those early days of the church. They're on their way to the temple, and as they're going, they find a man who's been lame from birth, and he's begging for alms. Peter reaches out, grabs a hold of him, and says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And instantly, his legs are made strong. He doesn't stagger. He jumps, he runs, he shouts at the top of his lungs. See, I I don't know if we're supposed to make a distinction between a sign, a wonder, and a mighty work that we find here in our passage. I mean, some have suggested that a sign is a miracle that causes people to recognize the authenticity of an apostle. You know, and a wonder is something that prompts amazement and a mighty work. Well, it showcases that this could not have been done except that it was done through God. Well, very well, let it be that way. But the point here is that true apostles were given the power to perform miracles just like Jesus had done. And right here in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, Paul indicates that every single one of the apostles were able to do these signs to authenticate their ministry. On that note, consider what Luke records in Acts 14, 8 to 10. He says, now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. See, that event was no different from the event of Peter and John at the temple gate. Paul performs miracles just like the other apostles do. Paul testifies to that in Romans 15, 18, and 19, where he says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Yeah, miracles were an essential aspect of the apostolic ministry. All of the apostles could perform exceptional miracles, even the raising of the dead. And at this point, I know some are going to argue, but aren't other Christians able to do miracles as well? 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that there is a gift of miracles. So let me respond. It is true that at times God does do miracles through any one of his people through whom he chooses to work in a particular way. This, in my mind, is an undeniable truth. But I would also argue that when this is done, it is not done to the extent it was done by the apostles, nor with the frequency, nor with the effect of the apostles. There is a unique way in which God worked through the 12 plus the one untimely born. Furthermore, I would argue that when dramatic miracles happen today, they do not occur with a kind of consistency that they did among the apostles. And I must insist on this over against the false claim of people who in our day make a living on miracle ministries. 
have a good objective look at many of these ministries. Ask yourself who can objectively verify that these miracles have occurred. Is there an objective medical report to indicate it? And here, I mean an independent report by a qualified medical professional. And one often finds today in many of these miracles, there's a great deal of hucksters and con artists. I know of one such ministry where the one who conducted it had an earpiece in which someone fed him information about people he was encountering. And so rather than having divine insight into these people, he actually had researchers who fed him information through his receiver. I know of another ministry that had enlisted people to keep people who were genuinely ill from ever making it onto the stage. I mean, these kinds of tricks of the trade are common. These contemporary or so-called super apostles are in fact frauds. And we're again reminded that these men are not the foundation upon which the church rests. Now let's get back to Paul. He's made the statement that he indeed is a true apostle as opposed to the fake super apostles. Now look at chapter 12, verse 13. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. See, Paul's saying, do you think that you're an inferior church because the apostle who came to you and started the church in Corinth was not known as the best preacher in the world or the man who had the best commanding presence? Did you think that you were second class because the man who led you was me? the man who has already admitted that he is nothing. See, this searching question is one that we must listen to today. You know, Christian leaders are to be chosen because of their calling by Christ. Christ appoints his people to leadership. Thanks so much, John. So just for emphasis, help us recall, why is it so critical that we understand there are no living apostles today? Yeah, because the minute we accept living apostles, uh, we have undercut the very basis for what we might call a closed canon. That is, that with the 66 books that make up our Bible, the Bible is finished. We have reached the apex. That is, Christ was presented. Uh, He has died for our sins. He's risen from the dead. He has appointed his apostles to be definitive interpreters of the Christ event who give it to us once and for all. The minute you leave room for apostles today, you're going to give people the room to make, you know, pronouncements, declarations of doctrine that they will want to have added on to the scripture. Uh, So now you're going to say, well, I believe in the Bible plus what apostle so-and-so said. And in the end, you have no firm basis left for your faith. So it's imperative that we see but apostles once and for all. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Price of Victory, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. This month, Dr. Newfeld will continue his video series, The Missionary God which airs weekly on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel. We believe these messages are so important for believers that we want to send you the expanded message series on CD for free. We'll explore questions like, why is it that God can allow so much suffering in the world? And why has God commanded us to make disciples of all nations? 
There are so many challenging questions, and though they may make us feel uncomfortable at times, they require Bible-focused responses. So join us this month on air, online, via podcast, or listen on the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app. Don't forget to ask for your free CD copy of this important series by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.